Welcome to the Internet of Things Security Institute podcast. Privacy Matters with Nicole Stevenson. A warm welcome back to our listeners. As you know, a primary purpose of this podcast is to raise awareness about privacy in the context of Internet of Things technologies, with a particular focus on the development and deployment of those technologies for smart cities and critical infrastructure projects. But along the way, we've also gained insight about privacy in the context of the digital economy more broadly, and about the very real opportunities to harmonize community expectations of privacy with the rapid pace of innovation. I've been privileged over the last weeks and months to speak all things privacy with some superb guests, and today's guest is no exception. I'm joined by Stuart Marshall, founder of management consultancy firm Marshall Floyd. Stuart teaches businesses to think about information technology as an effective and scalable resource, not a cost. With more than 25 years in the IT industry itself, Stuart is also a true information technologist and has designed and built solutions used by thousands of businesses worldwide, notably including Procter & Gamble, Kellogg's, and Kawasaki. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Thank you very much, Nicole. Entirely my pleasure to be here. So what's exciting to me about having you on the show today is the parallel that I can see between our two work universes. We're both tasked in many ways with encouraging organizations to lift their game. We might need to engage in some of those more challenging conversations with the C-suite or others within an organization to show them the bigger picture or unlock a level of potential or build their capacity in some way. So I do expect that our conversation today is going to have a bit of that flavor. Now, Stuart, when we consider the digital economy and the increasing accessibility of new and useful IoT technologies, I often hear that cities are racing to deploy the newest, the most cutting-edge technologies. They're, they're racing to be the first. Do you think that this competitive approach is missing the mark in terms of what smart cities are intended to do? Or does true innovation seem to necessitate this approach? It depends on which hat I put on. I can be the cynical old IT guy, if you like, and look at this from a perspective of toys for the boys, if you like. So there's a bunch of guys working for the government and they've got a bunch of money to spend. And they say, well, let's let's see what we can do. What Let's see what technologies we can leverage. And we'll go and fi- we find the technology and we'll go and find a use for it. This sort of looks into the sort of the Milton Friedman's four ways of spending money thing, which is you know if you if you get to the point where you've got somebody else's money and you're spending it on somebody else, then you generally don't really care what you're buying and you don't really care about the result that much. So they get to go and play. But I think if I, if I'm going to be a grown up, I'm going to put my innovator hat on and I'm going to say that this is far more important than the cynical old view. It's far more important for big cities, Sydney particularly, let's say, as, as Australia's sort of flagship city. It's important that Sydney is seen as a progressive town. It's the sort of place we want people to come and say, wow, isn't Sydney fantastic? And to do that, you have to be a little avant-garde occasionally. You have to sort of be more progressive. Now, there's a a slightly frightening thing that comes out of this is that um, Harvard has an atlas of economic complexity, which they release annually. And uh, Australia isn't doing so well at the moment. We've uh, collapsed from somewhere in the 60s worldwide down to 86 and this this is due to a lack of innovation and our forecast growth is one of the lowest in the world in this state so speaking as an innovator i'm really keen that people actually do go and have a bit of a play if you like and go and see what they can do and what can we achieve 
that needs to be balanced a little bit with this sort of proper business perspective that we do it with a proper business case in mind. Right. I think that this is true. The whole idea that technology is deployed because it's the shiniest, because it's the newest, and because the city's going to be the first, that's not actually a business case. That's a competition focus, right? (laughs) Where if you look at what your needs are, so say in a smart city context, if you look at what your needs are, and say you have a need to leverage particular data in order to provide uh, the citizens in your city with outcomes, say in terms of sustainability or equity or, or whatever, then you take what the needs are and you find the correct technology in order to assist you with those needs. And what I'm hearing from you, that's the point you're making. Absolutely right. We need the business case, undoubtedly. But there is a problem with that. Uh, and Mike Cannon-Brooks of Atlassian talks about this quite eloquently. And he says, the, the great thing about being in business is that you can take 5 or $10 million and go and have a play. And you can try something. And if it fails, you go, well, <laughs> there we go. We had a go. We learned some stuff from it and we moved on. If you're in government, you have to build the case that demonstrates that it will work prior to spending the 5 or $10 million. And that's not always the case or not always something that you can achieve when we're talking about cutting edge technologies that are as yet unproven. So it's difficult to say, well, this will definitely make us our money back or this will definitely be beneficial if you don't actually know. So there's the problem there for government who are expected to behave responsibly But yet, conversely, we want them to go and do the cutting edge stuff and be really awesome and make us look great. And it's a difficult balance for them to find. This also probably raises the bar, perhaps, for some of our vendors. There are some amazing technologies that are available that can assist cities across a variety of initiatives. But it's also probably incumbent on the vendors to be able to say, well, look, we recognize that you are going to need to leverage citizen data in order to ensure that recycling uptake is greater in particular neighborhoods. Uh, Now, in order to do that, you're going to need to have a product that does X, Y, and Z. And this is what our product does. This is how it leverages the data. This is how it keeps it safe. And actually provide the cities and decision makers within the cities um, with a little bit more of a basis on which they can make some of their business cases, as opposed to just having to Google, you know, whatever technologies might be relevant to them at the time. The difficulty with all of this is that we're talking about things that we can specifically define. If it's recycling, let's take that as a case in point. Uh, Recycling is fine because they're like, if I go and collect this much plastic, or I go and collect this much paper, I can generate this much income through recycled goods and so on. Uh, It's the more intangible things where it's the perception of Sydney, what that does for tourism, for example. There are many intangible things that come out of this that I run into this problem of it needing to find the balance all the time. I don't know where the right point is in that, obviously. I mean, it's, it will be case-by-case case basis. But there is undoubtedly an intangible benefits to a lot of the things that we want to do. The Olympics would be a, a good example of that. We spent an enormous amount of money on the Olympics for 2000 whether that ever generated the appropriate income from tourism and hey, isn't Sydney great and people coming year after year. You know, I don't know whether that's ever been worked out, but it seems to be something that's extraordinarily intangible and very difficult. I get the point that there are multiple things at play here, right? It's not just about deploying a particular technology. It's about understanding how your city works, what your city 
would like to do in terms of um, improving life for its citizens. It's about understanding what your city does do now. It's about understanding whether there are industry partners or vendors out there that can assist you in getting where you want to go. Um, about whether there are public policy imperatives like privacy or um, information security that you need to be aware of before you go buying that shiny new tech and deploying it. So I think without that holistic view, you're quite right that it um, it's a little bit of a furphy what we're talking about here when we talk about a smart city. Because uh, unless we have all of those things lined up, all of those dominoes in place, we could possibly say that cities aren't being very smart at all. <laughs> oh, well, well, that we can certainly say that. We can say that today. I mean, there were some shining examples coming out of the council mergers, for example, which were forced on New South Wales and Sydney in recent years. And it's turned out that some of the councils, when they merged, have been as yet unable to merge their finance systems. We're, we've now got councils that haven't been able to deliver their end of year figures. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tiny bit of a concern and something we probably want to keep an eye on. There's a certain amount of walking before you try to run stuff going on here. Yeah. So well, if you can't get your finances sorted out, how can we trust you to, to do some good IoT activities where we're going to be able to measure how many people are catching a train at a particular station at a particular time and where they get off and all of the other metrics that we would like to know about? Uh, if we can't actually get the basics right, how can we trust councils and government particularly to get everything else right for us? This is tweaking another question for me, right? The idea of trusting councils then, of course, brings to mind for me, well, no one's going to trust a council if they feel the council is not protecting their personal data properly. And I think that there's there's a little bit of business in this. There's a business of privacy that I'm certainly involved in and that councils should certainly be involved in. And you once said to me that you and I share a common purpose, and that's that we're both in the business of insurance. And now this stayed with me because it's a new way of opening up that challenging privacy dialogue or even that trust dialogue in the context of smart cities. Now, from your perspective, how is investing in privacy insurance for a city? I'm going to amend what I said. You can always look at things two ways. So the, the insurance and assurance thing. Uh, when, when we talk about privacy and protection, uh, of, specifically of, of the likes of you and I, of the individual, um, which is which, our, which is our obvious perspective, then yeah, we think in terms of Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and so on, uh, and that's um, that's the assurance side of things. Because what we want to do is, is we would like everybody to be really pleased with the way the world is. Yeah, you know, we, we 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 look at uh, we look from afar at the goings on in China with their yeah, the national credit thing that they have, uh, and lots of facial recognition and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and we, we, we don't want that here. I'm fairly comfortable in that statement. But we need to have faith that businesses and governments are going to do the right thing with the data they collect, i.e. they're going to use it for the greater social good. So that's the assurance side of things. But then there's the flip side, which is the insurance, which is when we start looking at it from the point of view of the business and the government, and they say, well, actually, we don't want to be on the wrong side, ignoring the fact that there are bad people out there. The vast majority want to be doing the right thing. From an insurance point of view, we want to be saying, well, you know, we're going to help you understand the point of privacy and the value of privacy so that you don't end up like Cambridge Analytica, uh, noteworthy now because they've gone out of business. That's the um, two sides of it, if you like. The certainty is the thing that really sticks for me in here. 
going back to my comment about um, the Harvard Atlas of Economic Complexity, Australia's dive from its place in the 60s to, to 86 now started pretty much about the same time of all of our turmoil in Canberra started with the, the revolving door prime minister that we've had for the last 10 years or so. The stability or uh, however we want to look at it isn't a good thing for an economy. It certainly can't be a good thing for trust and confidence and anything else. So, you know, we want all the toys, we want easy payment, we want single travel cards and all of this stuff. We want AI and all the other bits and bobs that we go with it. But we want to know that we'll be able to use it and it will be used uh, responsibly. So if we spend money on something like privacy and making sure the privacy house is in order in our city and making sure that we have done our due diligence in terms of a privacy impact assessment before we roll out whatever the shiny new tech is that we want. The insurance link there is that we've spent money to understand our privacy position, um, therefore not having to spend money later, hopefully, in defending our privacy position in the event that we have a data breach or some other failing in terms of data privacy, yeah? The last thing any government wants is a class action of 100,000 of its community taking it to court saying, no, you breached our privacy, we're going to sue the government. That's a bad thing. We don't want that. So uh, our responsibility as, as tech people, as, as privacy and um, innovators and, you know, on, on our side of the world, is to make sure that those who are leveraging the tools that stand to breach privacy, we make sure that they don't get it wrong because it's too important for them to get it wrong at this point and find out later on that, well, oops, yeah, they, that, we can't allow that situation to happen. Look, a classic example would be what's happening in the city of Toronto right now with their Sidewalk Labs initiative. That's gone off the rails big time in terms of Canadian Civil Liberties Association is now suing various entities, including the city of Toronto, in relation to the potential privacy harms associated with the Sidewalk Labs initiative. Now, this is potentially a very cool, very forward-thinking smart cities initiative that the city's involved in, but it has been fraught with privacy problems and a lack of commitment on the part of the innovators that are involved with the initiative to really ensure that it's done properly. I mean, an incredibly prominent Canadian privacy advocate, Dr. Anne Kavukian, she's the, the founder, the person who coined the term privacy by design. She sat on the Sidewalk Labs advisory board for some time until she could no longer do so because the privacy position being put forward by Sidewalk Labs was just untenable and she didn't agree with it. So instead of staying and watching it collapse, she left and said, "Not nah, guys, this is completely inappropriate and I don't want to be part of this anymore. Now that's a big call, isn't it, for someone in the privacy profession to make so publicly. And that says a lot to me as um, someone who is in a, you know, a similar role that there's more privacy homework to be done in the sidewalk lab space in order for the city to ensure that it's done properly and that citizens can rely on what's been done and they can trust it. It's all very new and it's the Wild West currently. It's it is Wild West in terms of how we use technology as the internet was 20 years ago. Yeah, it, it's all brand new and people are finding their way forward and doing their best. And those with 
uh, an appropriate level of integrity will put their hand up and say this isn't right um, but there will be those whose integrity is perhaps a little less robust who will look at the the money that they can make from it and they'll they'll get past their objections our problem is that we've got no experience of this yet and we have to find our way forward that's a really good point because for all we do talk a lot about smart cities there are not many examples worldwide of truly smart cities we're more it's more like we're on the smart city journey and part of that journey is engaging with privacy and other experts in relation to the protection of personal data ensuring that industry partnerships and vendor partnerships are robust and still ensure a level a high level of privacy protection in terms of citizen data going on to your your discussion just a moment ago about the ai ethics framework that's being looked at now in australia there's a real need even in that space that you know this new and vast territory that we're looking at to engage with the right experts and to understand you know how our our privacy and other laws work so that we have you know a good grounding a good foundation to move forward with some of these initiatives and that we don't just you know don't just roll them out um, without having done our due diligence no absolutely right well I know you you've made a, a submission back to the CSIRO based on their discussion paper uh, mm-hmm. And I will be too. For me, there's an interesting issue which comes out of this, which is we, everybody's talking about this as if the AI is is the ultimate um, gatekeeper here, and, but it's not. It's just a tool, right? It's just a you know, Asimov says this that you know, computers are just tools. And and it's interesting when you look at uh, one of the core principles that come on the paper, which is the, the fourth one for privacy protection. It says, and I'm, and I'm quoting here, any system, including AI systems, must ensure people's private data is protected and kept confidential plus prevent data breaches which could cause reputational, psychological, financial, professional, or other types of harm. Now, that's all well and good, uh, and that's an, an, an entirely admirable statement, but it does absolutely nothing whatsoever in terms of the human factor. And when we start looking at privacy and we start understanding what's really happening, uh, it isn't the machines that are the problem. Right? I mean, the vast majority of data breaches that we've had to date can be put down to human error. So we end up in a situation where we talk about privacy and AI and all of the ideas that we, we're talking about, and the harsh reality is that our biggest problem here is us. When there are people like you, like myself, and my, a variety of privacy colleagues, when there are people like us who are happy to have the discussion even if sometimes the discussion is not a comfortable one, right? We all like to get along, but there are so many important and valuable opinions that really do need to be placed on the table and waded through in order to find a way forward sometimes. But it's the having the discussion and doing that in a way that's almost fearless, you know, where we trust each other enough that we know, hey, look, the discussion has to be had and if we're not having it, then who will? I think if we start from that basis, you know, we may get somewhere. Well, it's the old the old adage, isn't it? You know, if not you, then who? Then if not now, then when? And that's where we are. Privacy today is something that we are very much learning about. Mm, absolutely. There's a there's a growing 
calls around the world um, for opt-in data rather than opt-out, where you control all of your own data and if you want an entity to have access to it, then you can grant them access. Quite how that will play out is is unclear at the moment. There seems to be um, a significant question as to whether um, many of the existing entities will give up the vast amount of data they've already got. The whole area is very grey, very homogenous. And as you say, we, we need people to sit down and have the conversations, horrible and uncomfortable as they may be. We've just gone off on three different privacy tangents, and I think it's wonderful because this is exactly the reason why the IOTSI is publishing this podcast. We need to have these conversations, however it is they come up, whatever it, whatever way we're led to them, these conversations are the important ones to be having in our industry, to be having within our professions, to be having in government, to be having within organizations. Um, so look, I thank you. I think it's fantastic. But one thing I do want to do is I want to talk about your book because you've recently published a book um, called well, there's two things it could be called. It's called doing IT for money. However, it reads doing it for money. Um, a wonderful book. And in fact, your book is an Amazon bestseller now. So since the time you told me you were published, you have just gone ahead and leaps and bounds with the book. So congratulations. The central premise of the book, the theme, is something that really resonates well in terms of our chat today. So Stuart, Really, before we go, I want you to tell me a little bit about your book. I sat down to write a book about IT that wasn't about IT. It struck me that there are an enormous number of business leaders out there, CEOs, CFOs, COOs, who are responsible for the technology within their business, and yet they have little or no real understanding of its purpose. The spiel on Amazon says, uh, are you a business leader who, in brackets, whisper it softly, doesn't really get IT? And that's the point. They're business leaders. They do what they do for a living, and they're very good at it. But they're not IT people. And 20 years ago, that was fine. You know, when I started my career, if, if you were running a business and you didn't really understand IT, that was no big deal because your exposure to IT was quite small. Today, every business is utterly dependent on it. So there is absolutely no excuse for a business to be running without proper oversight of what's going on in its technology layer. And the, the issues of privacy now come into this become more and more relevant, as do cybersecurity, as do an enormous number of things. Now, it was interesting. I was at um, a Microsoft IoT event recently. A guy was uh, representing a company selling wristbands, a bit like Fitbits. And these were things that monitored skin temperature. So that if you had workers in, in environments where they were prone to overheating or cooling or whatever it might be, you could monitor skin temperature and get them out of there at an appropriate time so that they didn't become exhausted or, or whatever else. The flip side of this is somebody saying, well, why, why is my employer monitoring my location and my well-being? There's no wrong or right answer to that, but it's something now that every single business leader has to be aware of, that there are there is such a dependence on technology and such an understanding needed for anybody running a business, they need to understand all of the implications. So the, the point of the book was to start getting them to think in terms of the use of technology and the value that it delivers, rather than just the fact that it's a piece of technology. I also really like 
the point that you make broadly about how having the appropriate technologies in place to do your job is never going to be a cost to the business. The cost to the business is not having the appropriate technologies in place. Just like it would be a cost to the business if you had a whole bunch of employees, but none of them were fit for purpose. The analogy I typically use is if you want to dig a big hole, let's say you're a mining company or you're a a roadwork company or whatever it might be, you've got two ways of digging a hole. You can get some guys with shovels and and axes, or you can get a digger and a guy with a jackhammer. Uh, And what we find is that people will use the tools. They always use the tools because the tools are far cheaper to have and to maintain than that is to have an equivalent number of men to do the job. The same logic applies quite happily to IT as well. Yeah, We now use spreadsheets and laptops. We no longer use big, dusty old ledgers and Burroughs Class 3 adding machines. So we, we need to look at IT as a way of empowering our individuals to be the best version of themselves that they can be. And I, I always think of Sigourney Weaver in the... Uh, the big sort of robot suit that she wore in Aliens. Because <laughs> that's how we all think of Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it, that, that and being squashed at the end of Paul. Um, it's, it's this idea, it's the merging of people and technology. That's what this is about. It's what IT is all about. It's, yeah, it's not a thing in itself. It's, its job is to make people as good as they can be, to maximize the value of your employees, if you're human collateral, not not just to be technology in its own right. So, you know, I, the phrase I say is that IT is only ever a cost if you're doing it badly. If you're doing it right, then it's paying for itself. It always pays for itself. If you do it badly, it starts to cost you money. Well, I think that's a perfect note to end our chat today. I would really love to make details of your book available to our listeners um, in the show notes that are available on the IOTSI website. And once again, Stuart, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. The Internet of Things Security Institute supports best security and privacy practice in the deployment of Internet of Things technologies for smart cities and critical infrastructure. To find out more, please visit IoTSecurityInstitute.com.